0: Alright, have a seat. Great to see you. I've been ready for this, this morning for a while. Um, so we're on the third part of a series on the gospel. We've talked about what it means to be lost, religiously lost, and now this morning is what it means to be saved, biblically saved. What does that mean? So if you've got your Bibles, flip to Romans chapter 3. We'll get there here in just a second. Romans chapter 3. Um, if you think about the scriptures, there's maybe a couple different ways you can think about them. Um, if you think about maybe the umbrella that the scriptures sit under, the umbrella would be the glory of God. So like from Genesis to Revelation, the umbrella that unites the scripture is the glory of God. Now underneath that, you could say this about the scriptures. that They all are meant to bear witness to Jesus. I, the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, they're all screaming Jesus. So when you read the story of David, the story of the Exodus, the story, like whatever story you want to bring in, they're all saying, Jesus, I can't, he's the point of the Bible. And so maybe you even say it this way, that there is a scarlet thread that runs throughout scripture and that scarlet thread is the gospel of Jesus Christ. that's, that's the thread that unites this thing that it speaks of, that it screams of. Okay. Now, um, before we get to to Romans, I'm going to throw this verse up on the the screen for you. And I want to just start here by coming back this week. We looked at this, uh, a couple of verses on week one, but I want to just bring this back into focus for us before we keep going. Um, first Corinthians 15 says this verse one now, and this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel. Okay, so he is reminding them of the gospel. Okay, so, so you might just pick this, this idea up. Even for believers, we need to be reminded of the gospel. This morning, if, if you are solidly in Christ this morning, this could be a beautiful reminder for you, and I think it's really important for you. So he's saying, okay, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received and in which you now stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Okay, now look at verse 3 here. It says this. For I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel. So he is saying that of all the different things that I'm writing about, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, right? And so he's saying of all these things that I have written about, all these issues, all of these things, things. This is the thing of central importance. This is the center of what I'm talking about. Everything else radiates from there. This is the center point. This is of first importance. It's primary. So here's the thing. This morning, we could roll out the geometry book. We could roll out the economics book. I mean, we could roll out the Cowboys depth chart. I mean, we know it well, right? I mean, we could roll out all these things, and he's saying, listen, none of those are primary. We could throw this in a theological kind of an arena, and we could say, listen, we could talk about end times all day long. I don't know how many times I've been asked to do a series on Revelation. I could set the number one hit list of let's do it on that. And so we could talk about end times all day long. We could try to figure out in this room, are you a premillennialist, a postmillennialist? An omelet? And you're like, what are you even talking about? That's the point, right? Okay, no kidding. I picked up a magazine two weeks ago, and there was a church that had a four by six inch ad in that magazine. Four by six inches. Their key hook in that average, I mean, they spent money advertising their church in that magazine, four by six inch. Their key hook was, we are a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist church. That's what we are. Are you kidding me? If if you ever see us advertising a four by six inch, that's all we've got. And our claim is free. Uh, pre. That's what we that's where we fall. Somebody take me into the alley and beat me. Right. I mean, that that is crazy. The gospel is of first importance. I mean, you can have an opinion about a lot of different things, but this is not an opinion issue. This is the centerpiece. This is the thing that is closed hand, the thing that we will go to war about. This is the centerpiece of all the Bible. Now, this is what led Martin Luther, commenting on uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. This is what led him to say this. The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. He's saying this is, I mean, this is the, this is the center. This is it. This is the central thing. Not a central piece. This is the central piece of what it means to be a Christian. And it goes on to say, most necessary is it that we know this article well. And I think a lot of this series was sprung out of, like I think the gospel is assumed more than it is known. Like there's a big difference between assuming something and knowing something. You know, like when the teacher does the the problem on the board, it's real easy to assume that you could do the problem, right? Until the piece of paper is on your desk with a pen and that problem on it. And then what looks so clear now becomes real ambiguous. Well, I think that should probably go there. And we get really confused, right? And so I think this is what happens when we think about the gospel is that it seems very clear to us until somebody says, hey, write that down for me. Hey, throw that down right here and let me see what the gospel is. Then this idea of assuming, well, I think it's, then this comes into play. So we've been really diligent to try to give you a biblical definition, the biblical scope of what the gospel is and what it means. Okay, we'll get there here in a second. But he goes on to say, not only that we know this article well, but that we can teach it to others. And I love this last line, "And and beat it into their heads continually. Because we are all prone to forget the gospel in our life. You can be a believer in here for 30 years, and I'll promise you, you are prone to forget the gospel. Okay, so Romans. here's here's the key theme of Romans. Romans chapter 1. You can even flip back there and look at it if you want. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul's going to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, of this thing that is in the center, the thing that we've got to know, we've got to be able to teach, we've got to continually beat into our heads. I'm not ashamed of that gospel, and here's why I'm not ashamed of it. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So this is the way by which men and women are saved. The gospel is primary. So he said, I'm not ashamed of this. So he's laying out the theme of the book of Romans. And then he's going to come in and he's going to start defining in the first three or four chapters what this great and glorious gospel that saves is. Okay, so now go ahead and flip back to Romans chapter 3, verse 26. Okay, now this is what Luther Okay, this is what he would say is the center point and the piece uh, the centerpiece of kind of the, the book of Romans and the centerpiece of the Bible is in Romans chapter three, verse 21, starting there. This is probably the most comprehensive description of what the gospel is in the scriptures. These five verses, the centerpiece of Romans, the centerpiece of the Bible, the centerpiece of what the gospel is. Here we go. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, a verse we know very well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and memorize 24 with 23. 24, the beauty, here it comes, the gospel, and are justified by his grace. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. The goal of the gospel is about God. It's to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so let me just preface this morning by saying I'm not going to be able to cover everything in that passage i I can't do it justice this morning um so i've got to pick a few things out here to, to really try to get to us this morning so let me let me start by giving the definition of the gospel that we've been working with it's on the back of your bulletin if you want to look at it there either way the definition of the gospel that we've been working around goes like this the just and gracious god of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people hopelessly sinful And sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection, so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. Okay, now that statement is not scripture. I just think it's a really good summary of biblical ideas, the biblical gospel. That's it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to take this line by line and make it all the way through this morning. So it starts with this first phrase. The just and gracious God of the universe. The just and gracious God of the universe. Here's what he's saying. That God is sovereign. We have a sovereign creator. Romans one twenty tells us that we, we can know this divine attributes of God, his power, his eternal God. We can know those by the fact that he has created the world. God is a sovereign creator. So, so here's what that means that Jesus in the scriptures, he's presented with a lot of different things. It's going to say this about Jesus, that he is the first and the last. Like Revelation's going to say, he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. So he started this thing and he's going to end this thing. It's going to say that he created all things. Romans 11, that from him and through him and to him are all things. So God is the creator. Like whatever thing you want to look at on the planet, you can just know that your great and glorious God. It is he that created it. He, he is the creator of everything that you see, us included. Okay, so he's the creator, but he's not just the creator. He's also the sustainer. So God sustains everything going on, Colossians 1, that he holds the universe together. So it's going to say that the reason the universe did not implode this morning is not the laws of the universe. It is because the sovereign hand of God keeps it from imploding. The reason your heart beats this morning is because God is telling it to beat. The reason your lungs are breathing in air this morning are because the sovereign sustainer of the universe is telling it to do that. He sustains. Okay, so you're going to get all these descriptions. He is the suffering servant. Isaiah, he is the sinless substitute, Second Corinthians. He is the great high priest in, in the book of Hebrews. He is all these things. But here's what's important for us to know today. That he is also today reigning as the victorious king. Like he's not just the sinless savior and he's not just the suffering servant. Today he is the reigning king. So I hear all these kind of weird ways of describing the gospel to people and presenting it to people. Like I hear this idea of accept the gospel. Accept, you need to accept Jesus. The problem is Jesus does not need our acceptance. He is the king and we need his. We don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord and we can acknowledge him as that or not. But he is the victorious king of the universe, the sovereign creator. Okay, it goes on that he's also just. Okay, so he's not just the sovereign creator, but we have got a God who is Just. Now, this is where the tables turn just a little bit for us, um, because I I think in our day, here's what's happened, that we have made a God out of love as opposed to recognizing that God is love. And there's a whole, I mean, that's a whole different category of thinking. When we make a God out of love, here's what we do. We throw God's wrath and his justice on the chopping block to elevate something that, that biblically shouldn't be elevated there. Okay, so we have got a God who is just. Romans 12 is going to say, hey, you don't need to repay. When evil is done to you, you don't have to repay. You can leave that to the wrath of God. And he's going to say, God's going to say, quoting from the Old Testament, that wrath is mine, vengeance is mine. There will be a day that all things are laid bare and justice is had. Okay, in Romans chapter 2, go ahead and flip back to Romans chapter 2. I want to read this to you here just so you get a good picture of the fact that God is just. Chapter 2, verse, eight, verse 4 is where we'll start. It goes like this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Okay, so this is, this is Paul laying out the gospel. That God is, is the sovereign creator, that he's just. And he's going to say this. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness, your heart beating today, you walking, it, it is meant to lead you to repentance. That's what it's meant to do. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impotent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself and On that day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. This group, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But there's this whole other category where God's justice is displayed. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, it doesn't really scare me when a seventh grader comes up to me and says, hey, I've got wrath and fury in store for you. I mean, that, that's not real scary, you know? But when g- the God, the sovereign creator says, there is a day when the wrath is coming. When, I mean, fury kind of even ratchets that up, right? I mean, there is a day that my fury is going to be poured out. Everything laid bare, a payment demanded. That scares me. And it's meant to scare you. I mean, I look at that and I'm like, okay, that that should do something inside of me. That, That should have an effect on me here. That there is a sovereign creator saying, you're storing up wrath. I mean, it's like we are depositing in the bank account of God's wrath and fury. That should scare us. And you would say, okay, maybe you could say, is God angry? I mean, is God just, I mean, is he just an angry? I would say, it, maybe it depends. If you would consider angry, um, the Bible presenting God as on a white horse with a sword dripping blood at his side, eyes flaming, ready to make war. I mean, I'd say he's pretty angry at that. I mean, in my book, that describes, I mean, and I'm not making that up. That's Revelation 19. You can read it. That is how the Bible presents Jesus coming back for justice. I look at that and I'm, and say, Rodney, are you mad? This? You kind of sound mad. Well, I'm kind of mad. My, my two-year-old and my two-month-old, we've got literally five hours of sleep the last two nights. I told you he had a gift of crying. That bro can break windows. I'm telling you. It's unbelievable. But, but no, I, I'm not mad. Here, here's, when I came into the ministry, a guy indirectly said this to me. He said, Rodney, you can be a prostitute to your people or you can be a prophet for them. And and here's, here's a pastor that's a prostitute. He will sell you anything to please you. Here's a pastor who's a prophet. He's willing to die for the truth and the biblical picture of Jesus. And I know that sounds offensive, that God is coming back, wrath and fury are in his hand. But that is the biblical picture of God's justice. Okay, but he's not only just, he's also full of grace. Look at Romans 3.24. We are sinful, but yet God looks at us He says you're justified by his grace. So, okay, describing God's a little bit complicated. One word typically doesn't, doesn't do. And so we can't just say that God's loving. And we can't just say that God's gracious. And we can't just say that he's full of justice. Because he's all those things. And so here's one word that you can't leave out. You can't leave out in the description that God is full of grace. He he is that. He is full of grace for people. Okay, so we've got a sovereign God, creator. He's just, but he's also gracious. Okay, now this is where it takes a turn for the worst. Next phrase. So we've got the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon. This is where it turns bad. I'm just going to preface you. If you've come in here this morning with kind of the feelings on a sleeve... A sledgehammer called Romans 3 is about to come out and kill him, all right? So I'm just prefacing this. The just and gracious God of the universe, here's what he did. Looked upon hopelessly sinful people. That is the message of Romans 1 through Romans 3, that we are hopelessly sinful. Um, Okay, I'm about to tell you a story that I'm pretty sure I could still be prosecuted for. So this has got to stay in between you and I this morning. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I'm sitting at a friend's house. My parents are here. They don't even know this story. I feel kind of awkward telling them now. Okay, so I'm sitting at my friend's house. It's it's 8 p.m. I get a phone call. I'm the quarterback of our football team. Three linemen call me. 8 o'clock. This is the Thursday before we're about to play our crosstown rival. 10 miles away, the Davis Wolves are coming to town the next day. So it's 8 o'clock. I get the phone call, and they say, "What are you doing?" Nothing, what are you doing? Well, we're just heading over to the rivals' football field well, what What are you doing at the rivals' football field? Well, we just happen to have a can of diesel in the back of our truck. i mean we we figured they probably would want a, a big decal of our school letters right in the middle of their field. We just figured they probably want that. Um, we just happen to have some spray paint, do a little decorative artwork on their field house. I mean we think they'd probably appreciate that, right. You know how you look back in life and you think, how could, how could that have ever sounded like a good idea? How could that have ever been that? In that moment, that was the, that was the most brilliant idea I'd ever, I'm in. Pick me up. I'm so, I am, I, my, my name is on the dotted line. They pick me up and here we go. To Davis, to their football field, diesel and spray paint in hand. We do our deed. I mean, it was magic, right? We get back the next day and I kid you not, this is what happened. I'm driving to school that morning. I pull in right behind me. A cop car pulls in. Right, be, I mean, the car behind me. As I, I'm ready to get out. I'm, I'm it. Don't shoot. Here. Take, I mean, I'm already ready to confess, right? He doesn't pull me over. I mean, we're all good. I make it out of the car. I get into first block. Kid you not. An office aide, calls me our head coach was kind of the assistant principal he's kind of the disciplinarian guy right i had never been scared of that coach before okay he the coach calls me our head coach you need to get down to the office i'm done here we go now the the, obviously the policeman told him that secret's out i'm it i'm guilty sue me prosecute me send me to jail death penalty whatever it is i'm i'm willing Okay, so I walk into the office, and I'm guilty, right? I mean, I'm coming in to spill guts. I look over, kid you not, he's got another play he wants to add to the playbook for the next night. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, you talk about the roller coaster of emotions. Okay, now now here's the truth underneath that. Listen to this. When we do good, when we are good, when we're law-abiding, we don't scare justice. Justice doesn't scare us we're not, it's comforting to us. When we are law abiding, we want justice to be done all around us. But when we are the ones that have broken the law, those that used to did not scare us now become terrifying for us. This is the problem with you and I. God is not our enemy as long as we're perfect. But if we're not perfect, he, the sovereign creator, just, he becomes our enemy. That's the problem. And Romans 3 brings this sledgehammer of what it means to be hopelessly sinful. And here's what he's essentially saying, what Paul's saying. What it means to be hopelessly sinful is that you are under sin. You are under it. I mean, it's not that you're over it and you kind of let go. It is that you are under sin. Look at Romans 3 verse 9. Paul's kind of giving this, he's kind of wrapping up this idea. He spent two chapters on, you are sinful people. He's starting to kind of wrap this idea up in verse 9. He says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Gr- all of you, we've, we've already charged, Paul saying, that all are under sin. And we spent week one trying to, to lay out what it means to be under sin. That it's more than just breaking God's laws. Right, like sin is lawlessness, First John three four, but it's more than external actions. Sin, in its essence, like the root of sin, is in our affections. This is why Jeremiah, the most concise definition of sin, Jeremiah two thirteen. Jeremiah comes, he says, "This is this is what evil is. It is turning from God." Jeremiah 2, 12, 13 turning from God the source of living water. The fountain of living water. The source of joy. It is turning from God for life and it's trying to build all these other cisterns. All these little pot holders that we think will hold water for us and give us life. It's forsaking God thinking that sex will do it. Thinking that a wife, a husband, a marriage, a kid. All those things make great gifts. They make horrible gods. The essence of sin is we have turned from God and we love other things. That's what it means to be under sin. We have turned from God, the source and the fountain of living waters, and we have sold ourselves to a thousand other lovers. But but it gets worse. You ready for this? I know this is really encouraging this morning so far. Not only are we under sin, or actually, let me, let me go to verse 10, go, chapter 3, verse 10, and let me give this description so you see a real, vivid, real vividly what it means to be under sin here. So let me read this to you here, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. Here's the definition of what it means to be under sin. As it is written, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Ten, this is what under sin is. You are not righteous. You're not good. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And listen, he does not bring in the, the neighbor that's a jerk. He doesn't bring in your coworker that you can't stand and say, hey, why don't you compare him, or why don't you compare yourself to him? We'll kind of use that as the judgment. He's saying, no, this is a universal problem. This is not just me. It's not just you. It's all of us that we are all understanding. He uses these universal type words that we're all understand that no one does good. Okay, so we've got a universal issue here. Okay, and then look at verse 13. And I'm going to make this really personal, uh, personable. But by substituting their kind of this general idea of all of us for us, for us individually. I and we. Right, watch how this is going to read. Verse 13. Our throat is an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under our lips. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. In our paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace we have not known. There is no fear of God before our eyes. That's the verdict on you and me, that we are under sin. Okay, this is where it gets a little bit worse. It's not only that we're under sin, but it's that we're dead in sin. This is how Ephesians 2 describes our sinful condition, is as we are spiritually dead. Dead people don't make movements toward God. Dead people don't want God. Dead people are completely satisfied and joy-filled, spiritually dead people in rebellion against God. Okay, so he's saying we are spiritually dead. Okay, I think the, the most vivid illustration of this was a preaching professor that would take his preaching class to a seminary. And he would tell them, you preach your best sermon to them. I mean, give them your best stuff. And apart from the Holy Spirit breathing life into people that are spiritually dead, you're preaching to corpses. That's what it means to be spiritually dead, that we are stuck in our sin. We are joyfully satisfied in it. Gets a little bit worse, though. We, uh, we are under sin, we're dead in our sin, and then here's kind of the last pronouncement, is that we deserve God's wrath because of our sin. Isn't this encouraging? Right? I mean, I'm smiling, right? right? That we deserve God's wrath because of our sin. Look at verse 19, Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. There will be a day that God's saying, my righteous law, perfect law, will be laid over your life. And on that day, you will have no ability to justify yourself. You're condemned. Now, I'm convinced of this. The biggest obstacle in this room and in our, in our culture, the biggest obstacle to the gospel is our inability to see that we are worthy of the wrath of God. That we're worthy of that. It's not just them, it's me. Like, I'm convinced that it's just real hard for us to get that. We've all got this justifying voice that says, no, if there's like a level of who's good and who's bad, the scumbag right here is definitely worse than I am. And here's the problem. The, God's law makes scumbags out of all of us. Th- that's the problem. That we're all that. We're all under sin. So this voice that justifies, Romans 3.19 says, shut your mouth and listen. You're held accountable. Rodney, quit justifying yourself. You are held accountable. to. You are not good in my sight, period. And see, like I'm convinced that this is the major obstacle because here's the question I've been asked over and over in ministry. How could God send someone to hell? And can I just be really honest with you this morning? That that's not even a biblical question. It shows our lack of awareness for how God sees us in the first place. The biblical question is this. How would a just God let any of us into heaven? That's the biblical question. I've heard it said often that prisoners are the people that are most receptive to the gospel. And you know why? Because they have heard a judge stand before them, slam the gavel down, and say, you are guilty of the crime. And that is the prerequisite for you getting the gospel. So let me ask you this question. Do you see yourself as worthy of the wrath of God? Until you do, the good news will never be good to you. Until you do, it will never be beautiful news. Do you see yourself as worthy of the wrath of God? Okay, this is where it gets better. So we're hopelessly sinful people. And so the question of the Bible is, how will God respond to these people? These rebellious people, how is God going to look at them? And what is he going to do to them? This is what he does to them. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. That is God's gracious response to hopelessly sinful people. I will send my son on a death mission for him. Okay, now look at these words in, in Romans 3, 23 through 25. And we need to develop a vocabulary of the cross, A good vocabulary that describes what happened there. And look at what it says. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that is not the end to the story. Verse 24, and are justified. Circle that word, highlight it in red and pink and yellow with three stars. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. Highlight that word. That is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. Probably not a word you've used in the last all of your life, right? Circle that word. These are the, this is the vocabulary of the cross. The propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so justification. Let's deal with that word first. What it means to be justified. It takes us all to this legal courtroom type of a setting where God parades us in and we are woefully sinful people. The gavel has been slammed down. You are held accountable. Stop justifying. It is done woefully, hopelessly sinful people. That's what you are. The rap sheet has been read and it's long. It looks a lot like Romans chapter 3, 9 through 18. A lot like that. None of you are good. Rodney, you are not good. You're not righteous. I don't see you as pleasing to me. You are an object of my wrath and the wrath is coming for you. A legal situation. And here is the gospel that Jesus on the cross Paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus paid the penalty of God. That is what makes the good news such great news. We are condemned as hopeless sinners. And God comes, sends Jesus. And our debt is paid. Our debt is paid. Isn't that beautiful? Condemned. Guilty. Accountable. Object of wrath. And now, positionally, we are justified. God no longer treats us like we are, but treats us as if we were Jesus. We're justified. That's the gospel. Okay, you've got this next word, redemption. This is a marketplace term. Okay, it's got this idea of, of slavery in, in these days. And you would have to buy slaves for yourself. You would have to buy them from their bondage into freedom. It's got this idea of, of purchasing out of bondage. So, so redemption first of all, going to focus on our helpless and hopeless condition. We are slaves to sin, under sin, dead in sin, deserving of the wrath of God in our sin. That is our condition. It's hopeless. It's this picture of the Exodus where the people of God are in exile in Egypt to tyrannical rulers. They have no way out. They have no power to get out. They are hopeless. And here comes Moses. And here's the idea of redemption. It is in our hopeless situation that God has sent Jesus to purchase the people of God out of their bondage. We are under the dominion of sin. And here comes the gospel. Jesus has purchased the people of God. He is this greater uh, Moses. He has come in to liberate. I, I get this idea of this POW, uh, POW, kind of this concentration camp. People behind barbed wire with guns being held there. Be- here comes the liberator. Can you imagine that scene? That is the gospel. We are confined in bondage, and here comes Jesus, the great liberator. Okay, we've got this other word, propitiation. Probably a word foreign to a lot of us. It's this idea, it's a ceremonial kind of idea. So in the Old Testament, you've got all these ceremonies that take place and kind of foreshadow this coming of Jesus. So it's this idea of the wrath of God is coming for sin. It is coming. It is aimed at you on its way, being stored up. Okay, like, okay, Now, when you describe the word propitiation, there's a couple different ways you could do it. You could kind of bring in this idea of, and Jesus kind of deflects the wrath of God, but he doesn't deflect it. It's not like there's a boxer and the punch is coming and you kind of get a go- glove in front. It's not that. Okay, it's, it's much bigger than that. When he says, God, okay, I will drink this cup if it's your will. It's not, God, whatever, I will drink the cup. The cup in the Old Testament signifies the wrath and the fury of God. And on the cross, the wrath and fury meant for us. Jesus lifted up the cup and he drank every drop of it. On the cross, Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. Drank every ounce of it for us. Okay, this Old Testament, the sacrificial system, I think there's beautiful imagery here. On the Day of Atonement, one time a year, the high priest, one of the things that they would do is they would get two goats. And they would cast lots over the goat and they would choose one. They would bring one into the temple and they would slay that goat in the temple. And he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And here's what it was symbolizing. That the wrath of God has just slaughtered that goat to appease and to exhaust the wrath of God so it wouldn't consume the people. And then he would take this other goat and he would pray over this other goat and he would literally kind of symbolically transfer the sins of the people by confessing the sins of the people, place it on this goat. And a guy would take that goat, lead it out into the wilderness and let it go. It was called the scapegoat. And in the New Testament, Jesus becomes that. He becomes the lamb that was slaughtered for our sin And here's the effect of that. He becomes the scapegoat who takes our sin, Psalms uh, 139, as far as the east is from the west. Do you know why we can boldly say our sin is remembered no more? Because Jesus has paid for it. He exhausted the wrath of God on the cross. The the cross and the resurrection are, are typically tied in the New Testament. So anytime you see one, you see the other. So What God has done on the cross, he has dealt with sin. But in the resurrection, here's what he's done. He has displayed the power of God over it. The resurrection is a display of the power of God. So so here's what we get to do as followers, as believers in the gospel. We get to cling to the cross in our sin, knowing that all of them are nailed there. And we get to cling to the risen Savior, knowing the same power that raised Jesus from the dead works in us to defeat sin in our life. Imagine yourself 2,000 years ago in a village. The king of your village goes out to war. He takes the men. He goes to war on behalf of your village. As a person in that village, you are eagerly awaiting the news. Did we win? Did we not? When they go to war, they fight for you. If they lose, you lose. If they win, you win. You are eagerly awaiting the news. And all of a sudden, you see the guy running with the news back to your village. He comes through the doors, and he's got one of two options. He's going to give you advice or news. If it's advice, it's going to be a military strategist. And advice sounds like this. We have lost the battle. Archers, you go there. Infantry, you go there and we will fight for our lives here. That's advice. But the gospel is not advice. The gospel is news. News does not need a military strategist. All news needs is a herald. So the herald brings back the great news that, listen, it is not up to us to fight for our lives. He brings back news of what has been accomplished for us. He brings back news that Jesus has won the battle for you. That's the gospel. Every other man-made religion on this planet is advice. You do this and you'll fight for your life. You do this, just work your way into it. Just be good enough. just be moral enough. Just be a good enough dad, a good enough mom. It's advice. The gospel is news of what Jesus has done. Last phrase, and we're done. So that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. The news of the gospel is not applied to you until you receive it by faith. And when you think of the word receive, like it's a radical word because if you've got two things out here, if there's Coke and Dr Pepper, I can only receive one of them. And I'm receiving Coke, right? I don't know what you are. But but Let me rephrase that. The Christians in the room get the Coke, right? Oh, okay, right. Okay, so if you take one, listen to what you do. You reject the other. So to receive by faith is taking Jesus, forsaking everything else. Taking what cannot be touched for everything that can be. It's a radical word. It's got a radical edge to it. It says, received by faith. Now, here's what faith is. Faith requires knowledge, agreement, and a joyful submission. So there's got to be a knowledge. There's got to be certain truths. You cannot be saved without certain truths. This is why Paul says, we have got to preach the gospel. It, you do not get the gospel by osmosis. It doesn't work that way. It has got to be proclaimed. That is how the gospel spreads. So there's got to be a knowledge of certain facts that Jesus died for sin, that we are hopelessly sinful, that on the cross our sin has been taken care of. Okay, so there's got to be facts that are known. But then there's also got to be agreement, right? So it's not just, okay, that there are things that we know but we have a solid conviction that they're true that we believe these things that these things are dependable so it's not just knowledge it's knowledge and agreement but listen even the demons have knowledge and agreement so this does not save you yet and this is where i think almost everybody in bible belt world lives with knowledge and agreement thinking that i know these facts i agree with these facts so surely i have received it by faith but we have not received it by faith until we have done one more step Until we have joyfully submitted our lives to it. Until we have joyfully surrendered the rights of our life and acknowledged the Lord, the sovereign creator, as the one with ultimate rights to us. A knowledge agreement, a joyful submission. God, my life is wholly yours. That's receiving by faith. And let me tell you, faith is, is dangerous and sensible. It is dangerous in kind of a Chronicles of Narnia sort of way, right? Like he's a lion. And although the lion is gentle, he's also very powerful. He has got ultimate rights. For his will and his ways, his plans, his purposes, he can demand anything out of us. It's dangerous. This is why the Bible says count the cost. But it's also sensible. He's a trustworthy king. He's a trustworthy ruler. And I want you to look at that last phrase in the gospel definition forever. Forever hinges on faith. You know, it's really hard to convey the way to forever. Like, we live in a real temporal society, right? I mean, so, like, right now, what we're thinking about right now is there's a Cowboys game coming on. There's this, that. We got dinner. We got lunch. We got stuff going on tonight. We've got 45 things this week. There's all temporal things. It's so hard to lift the gaze to eternity, isn't it? Forever. Ever, your faith hinges on or your forever hinges on faith, a willful response of joyful submission to the king let's pray <clears throat> here's how I want to end today This morning, I got up and I'm reading 2 Corinthians 5. And this is another place where Paul unpacks the gospel. And and he's going to say that after he unpacks the gospel, or as he unpacks the gospel, he says that in some way that we are ambassadors of it. We are heralds of the news, proclaimers of the news, And and then he makes this this wild kind of a statement. He says, it's as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. And I'm sitting there this morning thinking, this morning a group of people are going to come in to the conference center of all places. And God has given me the weight and the responsibility, the privilege of being the ambassador, the herald that here is the good news. And I want to tell you, this morning it felt a little bit overwhelming. There was a heaviness that came along with that to make sure it's presented in a way that's clear, that's biblical, that's right. And and then he finishes that with, with this wild statement. He says, we implore you. He's looking at the Corinthian church and he's saying, I am pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. You don't want him as your enemy. You don't want his wrath being poured out on you. If you want to know how serious God is about sin, look at the cross that he would slaughter his own son because of it. I just want to plead with you this morning. Be reconciled to God. The gospel is great news. The gospel is beautiful news. The gospel is life-changing news. The gospel moves us from being an object of God's wrath to an object of his affection. The gospel adopts us into the family of God where we are his sons and his daughters and all the rights to the king's treasury becomes ours. I just want to beg you, if if that has not happened, be reconciled to God. Faith is... Is more than knowledge, more than agreement. It is joyful submission. God, here I am. All of me, here I am. I'm yours. And before we sing this last song, I'm going to read this quote of my favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> and this is him commenting on pleading. He's, he just preached on 1 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, and he's pleading with his people. Be reconciled to God. Let me just read this to you. This is him preaching to his congregation. I plead with every unconverted, unbelieving soul within this place, and I plead as though for my own life. Friend, are you at enmity with God? And God is very angry with you. But on his part, there is every readiness for reconciliation. He has made a way by which you can become his friend. A very costly way to himself, but free to you. He could not give up his justice and so destroy the honor of his own character. But he did give up his son, his only begotten, and his well-beloved. And that his son, and this son of his, has been made sin for us. Though he knew no sin. See how God meets you. See how willing, how anxious he is that there should be reconciliation between himself and you guilty man, you guilty woman. Oh, sirs, if you are not saved, it is not because God will not or cannot save you. It is because you refuse to receive his mercy in Christ. If there is any difference between you and God today, it is not from lack of kindness on his part. It is from a lack of willingness on yours. The burden of your eternal ruin must lie at your own door. Your blood must be on your own hands. And I just plead with you. The blood can be on Jesus. Jesus. That's the gospel. He has paid for it. All of it. That's the gospel. The wrath has been appeased. It's been exhausted. You've been redeemed. That's the gospel. So as we sing this last song, if there's something stirring in you of, okay, I I need to have that conversation. I need to get that piece figured out. On your contact card, there is a spot down at the bottom that says, I want to just know how that process works. And that will just initiate you and I contact. And we'll grab coffee this week and we'll chat through it. There is nothing more important on the planet than Jesus making you right. Jesus paying for your sin on the cross. So I'm going to pray and then we'll sing that truth. God, we love you. God, we thank you for the cross. It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's great. It's the centerpiece of the Bible. And by it, sinners like me have been saved. Thank you, Jesus.